Welcome. You're listening to another episode of the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. I'm Dave and I'm your host. And I'm about to present you with another tragic performance from our most recent London live show at the Dog Star in Brixton where we had our usual variety of performers, musicians, comedians, storytellers, and even a magician standing up on stage and performing something tragic. Stand Up Tragedy are big fans of short stories performed live, whether they're fiction or they're true stories. And so today we have another tragic story for you. Before I tell you anything more about today's performance, let's have a listen. Stand up tragedy. Thanks. Oh, no, that's <sighs> um, yeah, hello. Good evening. Um, my name's Louise Morris. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm a bit nervous. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, right, well, okay, yeah, as, as David said, I am here to um, tell you a story. Um, this is um, the first time I've felt able to tell this story, and um, I thought that stand-up tragedy might be a good platform for it, because it's a story that I'm going to want to take... Um, yeah, take take further. Um, essentially, what I, I need to give you a bit of um, background information um, in that um, this is a story that was written by my mother. Now, my um, mother suffered a severe stroke, and that left her with um, cerebromedulla spinal disconnection, which I don't know. Um, well, it's 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 basically it's locked in syndrome. So she was unable to move, unable to eat. She's completely paralysed. Um, have any of you read um, *The Diving Bell and the Butterfly*? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, my my mother was able to communicate in a similar way. Um, she has written this story using her eyelids, and yeah, I would. Um, I'd like to um, take this opportunity to, to read it for you now. Um, thank you. Can I have the stand back? Thanks. Sorry, yeah, bear with me. My mum always loved yellow, so I've backed it onto some jaunty yellow card for you to look at. Um, so, this is the house that Jack built by Linda Morris. The bedroom is our den. The carpet is the softest you've ever felt beneath your feet. Years we spent saving up for it. We argued a bit about the colour, but in the end he agreed that beige was less risky than cream. It infuriated him 
the idea that we might have something in our house that wasn't perfect. Sometimes I think I can feel it on my toes, even though I couldn't feel it now if you wrapped me up in it. Jack always said a bedroom should be a place you'd be happy to be trapped in if it came to it. You don't want to be sick in a room you hate, he used to say. I don't suppose that he ever imagined that either of us would be this sick. He liked to be prepared for the worst, though. This is a man who insisted on keeping an apocalypse cupboard. That's actually what he called it. It was full of cans of things you wouldn't normally eat. Tin peaches, rice pudding, sardines. I used to donate some of it secretly when they were collecting for food parcels at the church. I float around the house on the loneliest days, like an old lost ship. It's amazing what you can recall when recall is all you've got. It feels more real than reality most of the time. The slide of the bathroom door followed by the clink of the lock, the creak on the fifth stair, the photo of Louise above the hall table. We have to sell it now. What choice is there? You can go anywhere in your head, but I always end up at home. I can't resist it. The alternative is reality. Mint custard walls and thin pink curtains. Nurses I can't ask to speak more quietly. And the towering shadow of the drip beside the bed. My living room is my favorite place in the world. The cherry mantelpiece, hand carved. It took him years. I didn't think he'd finish it. And then it was my birthday, probably about six years after he started it. I'd gone to my mother's for a few days, and when I got back, there it was, a great roaring fire framed in the surround like a painting. The look on his face, you could tell it was worth all the splinters, those long Sundays locked in the garage. Jack busied himself with the dining room after my stroke. He told me that himself. Not that he thought I could hear him. Talk to her, the doctor said. I could almost hear him rolling his eyes. He was always like that. We had a cat years ago, and he refused to speak to her. What's the point in talking to something that can't understand you, he'd say. I'm here, I screamed over and over again. Please find me. I'm here. But he never did. I thank God for small mercies. I know that room better than I know the back of my own hand. I can visit it any time. He even made the curtains, would you believe? Not many people can say that their husbands made their curtains. I chose the fabric, of course. You can't trust a man with fabric. They only end up copying their mothers. He wanted this house to be his. Hours. I used to joke that it'd never be finished, that as soon as we got anywhere near to finishing it, he'd take it all apart and start again. 
It wasn't all that much of a joke. Louise says he never finished the dining room. She can't bear to go round. It's like watching your childhood crumble, she says. I asked her if she wanted to live there. It's all paid off, you see. But she just wants it gone. I'd like to know that one of us could still live there, but, well, I understand. In the end, the less he believed I could hear him, the more he'd talk. It's like he became desperate, as though he'd run through his can't-talk-to-things-that-don't-understand barrier and come crashing out the other side. Then he was talking more than he would have if he thought I was conscious. He said the house felt enormous without me, like a haunted old mansion, he said, except the ghosts are in my head. I'd will my hand to reach out and touch him, anything to let him know, but nothing would move. He was unravelling, and I was a sodding statue. We understood each other, he once said, and then there was a th silence as thick as smoke. When he breathed in, it was like he was sucking all the air out of the room. You understood me like no one else could, he said eventually. Now you don't even know I'm here. I'd have sold my soul and his to let him know. Inside, I was tearing at my skin to be let out. But on the outside, nothing showed. They didn't tell me for months. Well, they didn't know I was in there, did they? It was an agency nurse who picked up on the blinking. It takes a fresh pair of eyes sometimes. Problem is, this thing's so rare. It was too late by the time they realised. Much too late. The last day I saw him must have been a Sunday because Songs of Praise was on the telly. The telly's on all day. I suppose they think it fills the silence. No one asked me what channel I'd like. He looked worse than I've ever seen him. Didn't look like he'd washed in days. He cried. He actually cried. The first tear in 37 years of marriage, and I couldn't even bloody wipe it for him. And then that was it. He never came back. I visit the house every day from the inside of my head. Only instead of looking out at the street, I look in at our lives. It's perfect when I'm awake, but when I'm asleep, things happen. Dreams are a curse. You can't control them. The wallpaper peels. Plaster falls from the ceiling like dandruff. His mantelpiece is cracked and mildewed. I walk around calling his name and then I wake, hot and frightened, dying to sit up and catch my breath. I lie corpse still and stare at the hospital ceiling, the sinister crack creeping above my head. I was as good as dead when he thought I was a vegetable.
He was all on his own, and there was nothing he could do about it. Jack needed to be in control. Always did. I knew before they told me. You couldn't miss something like that. Louise just went silent. She was always the one who was good at talking to me, keeping me up to date with, going, with, with what was going on, telling me funny stories about people at work or giving me the latest instalment on the neighbours. The first day she came in and, and, didn't say a no, and didn't say a word, I knew it had to be her dad. She just held onto the bedclothes and screwed up her lips. When they realised I was functioning, mentally I mean, one of the nurses told me Louise wasn't up to it. Tablets, apparently. Massive overdose. They said there was a tally chart. How many had taken, what kinds. Only Jack would keep a running total. Only Jack. Now this is all I have, this place in my head, the place my Louise grew up. This is the house that Jack built, and it's all that's left of him now. So that story wasn't a true story. It was specially commissioned for stand-up tragedy from the author Jay Adamthwaite, and it was performed by the actor Becky Malt, who was reading that story in character, and she did a really amazing job. Not telling the audience that it was a true story till after it was performed was part of the way that Jay Adamthwaite designed the piece. Most of them experienced it as if it was a real story which is a trick, I guess, that was designed to give our audience a more intense emotional experience of the events that the story lays out. And that's at the heart of what stand-up tragedy is. We're about entertaining you, but we're also about making you feel and making you think. Our producer, Bryony, spoke to both Jen and Becky about how tragedy features in their lives and how they use it in their work. I'm Jenny Adamthwaite. I've written one of the stories performed tonight by Becky Malt. Yeah, so Jen, but you're quite familiar with the idea of stand-up tragedy due to your... Uh, how would you describe your involvement with Dave? <laughs> um, I'm Dave's partner. I've lived with him for the best part of 12 years. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, very familiar with the idea of stand-up tragedy by now. So you know all about how it's supposed... It's intended to give the audience a cathartic experience. Yeah. To how much... Do you, would you say that your story does that? Um, to be honest, not a whole lot. Um, but I do know that stand-up tragedy is a very varied night and what usually happens is that you'll get some very dark, tragic pieces and then you'll get some more cathartic ones. So I'm relying on other people to bring the catharsis tonight. So your writing doesn't usually tackle tragic ideas? Um, often my writing is quite dark. I Often tragics uh, tackle sad ideas. Um, but what I learned when I was researching something to write for stand-up tragedy was that um, tragedy seems to be quite a broad term and it seems to encompass different things and what I thought myself is that 
for me, tragedy has to encompass a certain amount of irony, which most of my work doesn't do. So I, I think in general I don't write tragedy. Um, certainly writing for me is a way of working out what I feel and what I think, and I do use it in that way. Um, so I suppose in a way that the process, the process of writing is a cathartic one for me. My name is Becky Moult, and this evening I was reading Jen Adamthwaite's story, which is called The House That Jack Built. I'm an actor-singer. I trained at the Royal Academy of Music. I do um, all sorts of various bits and bobs of, of theatre, quite a lot of cabaret and sketch comedy. I've never done sketch tragedy before, but there's a first for everything. So what did you initially think then, as a performer, when Jen came up to you and said, will you read my tragic story? I wanted the challenge for myself because I was massively out of my comfort zone. Um, tragedy is, is not my bag. I've, I've been told that that's not my strength and certainly comedy is my strength, um, I would say. So um, I thought it was a beautifully written piece and the challenge for me was to try and do it justice. Mm. You got quite immersed into the story. What's it like sharing a tragedy even if it's not your own personal? Yes, not your own personal story. It was... Um, there was an interesting issue going on because I was supposed to pretend to be the character Louise who was reading this story that was written by her mum who'd had a stroke and suffered from locked-in syndrome. Um, and the question for me was, did I pretend to be this person, Louise, who wasn't a performer, who wouldn't necessarily put across the story particularly well because she'd be so emotional? Or did I try and, and do justice to the story and read it well but then lose lose the sort of the personification of myself as as this person having being put in this crazy position of reading the story of her dead mother about her father who's committed suicide yeah it was a really interesting sort of acting dichotomy to explore how did you feel when you came off the stage i felt really um drained <laughs> and a bit shaky and quite upset Yes, I felt really like I'd gone through the wars. So do you think the audience also managed to take something away from the tragedy? I mean, Jen's beautiful writing alone um, sells the performance, certainly. I, I mean, to the extent, obviously, we set up this conceit with the, you know, I'm, I wasn't an actress, that I was, in fact, this, this girl, Louise, that was reading out the story of her mother. I don't know if that, in some respects, might detract from the audience's attention, thinking, hang on, is she for real? Is this actually authentic? Is, is this an actress? You know, so they spend time considering that and actually not actually focusing on, on the story itself. So that was my concern. I, yeah, I hope that they at least enjoyed the, the story. Will you do a bit more tragedy in the future? Has it given you a bit more confidence? Yeah, I'd love to. Why not? Jay Adamthwaite's story was written especially for stand-up tragedy, but she also has a brilliant back catalogue of short fiction that you can find on her website, www.jayadamthwaite.co.uk. She's particularly interested in flash fiction, so you can find a lot of that sort of stuff there. And she's currently working on a novel, which is going to be amazing when she's finished it. She releases a very short story on her Twitter account, at jadamthwaite, every day. And she really enjoys connecting on there, both with other writers and with people who enjoy her writing.
Becky Malt trained at the Royal Academy of Music. She's sung in a variety of guises, including in the T-Mobile commercial in 2010, at the Royal Albert Hall as a backing vocalist for Elton John, and at cabarets and functions across London. Most recently, Becky was transported back to 1533 as the barmaid Alice in Baited Hooks, a site-specific piece of Tudor intrigue. Becky has also performed in sketch comedies at the Canal Cafe and Pleasance Theatres. I just want to thank her again for doing something that was outside of her usual performance area and doing it so well. Stand Up Tragedy shares links and information about all our performers and what they're doing and what we're doing over on our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk or you can like us or even friend us on Facebook or you can follow us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy that's the number for tragedy to get instantaneous access to all the tragic news. Did we mention we're going up to the Edinburgh Free Fringe Festival in August? We'll be downstairs at the Fiddler's Elbow from 6.30 to 7.30 every day. For an hour of tragedy from the 3rd to the 14th of August. We just can't wait to bring together amazing, tragic performers from across the fringe in a room with a microphone and an audience. If you can't make it up to the fringe this year, don't worry because we're going to be bringing the fringe to you. Every day there's going to be a free podcast featuring a different tragic performer and conversations with them and with other people who are up at the festival about the idea of tragedy. If you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you'll get all of those podcasts and you'll also get next week's podcast, which will be coming out next Friday. Subscribe to some tragedy and remember that tragedy is a shared experience. So keep on sharing the tragedy. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. Our theme music was written and recorded by Sam Wilkinson. You can be contacted at radiojuan at yahoo.co.uk. There's also some music that we're using that was written by the Reactionaries and was produced by the amazing George Brufton.